Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 19th, 2022. This is episode 3186 of the Survival Podcast. Giving its, given it's Wednesday, it is interview day. I have Mark Baker from Baker's Green Acres on. Some of you are like, I, I think I know that name. Well, he does all kinds of cool stuff, and we're going to be talking about the stuff he does. Uh, but you might know his name if you're a long-time TSP listener. Mark is a guy in his farm dealt with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources trying to take away 70 of his pigs because they looked the wrong way. I'm not kidding. We'll get into that today. And the TSP community and many other communities stood behind Mark all the way back then, and he, he didn't just win for himself. As you'll hear today, he won for a lot of others. But we're going to talk about homesteading, as a solution to America's food crisis. And we're going to get into a lot of other things as well today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Uh, start, I'm sorry, uh, sponsor day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Do you want to take back your digital sovereignty? You should. And Start9 can help you do that. It, you're talking about a little bitty box, not much bigger than a couple decks of cards put together that will allow you to do all the things that you think you need uh, these cloud providers like Google Drive, etc. to do. Uh, to to create an environment where you can encrypt what you're doing. You want to run your own Bitcoin node or Lightning node or both? You can do that too. What Start9 has done is taken a lot of these things that are complicated things that you think of as really technical people being able to do and package them in a way that once you have your Start9 Embassy server installed, which is so easy even I can do it, it's kind of like installing an app on your phone. And then you can have like control and manage your own passwords in a way that's not just secure, but it's private and controlled by you. Uh, all your images and have all your files available from anywhere. And new stuff's being added to it all the time. They do a 9% discount for members of the MSB. And if you use the Fold card, you can serve, save another 9% in Fold by buying your, your Start9 with a Fold gift card and save 18%, which will cover your MSB for a long time. So you should be using both Start9 and Fold by now. Anyway, check out Start9.com to learn more. Next up... We just talked about saving money. Well, saving money is the first step in building wealth. You save money and then you invest money after you've saved enough that you can at least take care of your basic needs. John Pugliano is an amazing guy. I have known John since I believe it was 2010 when I met him in Salt Lake City. It was either 2010 or 2011 that I met John. I met him very briefly. He came basically to check me out and decide if he wanted to have anything to do with me because he was like, is this dude the same dude in real life as he is on the air? So he came to that trade show, walked up, introduced himself to me, stood away. I didn't know this until years later. Listened to me talk to people for about a half hour, told his wife, I'm good, let's go home. He got in touch with me later, and we started working together. And not long after that, he said, hey, I want to start a podcast. What are my, what, what, what should I do? What are my, your tricks and tips? I said, just go do it. And he did. And he started the Wellsteading Podcast. He's been doing it a long time now. 
you definitely want to subscribe to the Wealth Studying Podcast. You can learn more at wealthstudying.com and, and learn about the other things John does as well. He's an investment manager, and he's a member of the MSB uh, Expert Council. He answers your questions all the time on wealth and investing and asset protection. Just a great dude. You need to learn more about him again, wealthstudying.com. Uh, with that, I want to jump into it, but I, I want, since this, uh, we had another long interview like yesterday, and I want to just do the T-SPAS segment up front because I want you to know about this item of the day. Uh, it's actually a deal of the day, and it's a deal of two days so far. It's still up for sale uh, at the discounted price as I do this recording. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, two is one, one is none. If you have no generators, you need a generator. If you have a generator, you need a backup. This would be a great backup generator. It's a great generator for tailgating and camping and stuff like that as well. It's super lightweight. A normal person just carry it around like a satchel. Uh, it's very quiet. It's actually quieter on like a quarter load than a, than a normal conversation. It does get louder than that at a higher load. It's still really quiet. It is an inverter generator, so you can run your electronics and things like that that need to run on inverter generators. Uh, it normally sells for $429. It's on sale right now with free shipping. It'll be your house in a day or two from Amazon, $350. Now, again, I, I want to say that this is not a generator I would have as my primary generator if I had a choice. If it was that or nothing, I would. This is more of a backup generator and a nice portable quiet generator. It's made by WEN, W-E-N. 2,000-watt inverter generator. I found tons of reviews of this thing on YouTube. People love it. Tons of channels have reviewed it and love it. Uh, easy start, nice and quiet, just works, assuming you take care of it, because you know you do things like change oil and stuff in generators. Um, but it is just a great deal. And because of that, even though I don't personally own this one, I have I've dealt with it with other people uh, owning it. I've actually put my hands on it. It doesn't go in T-SPAS. When I, when I saw it, I'm like, I put it on my price alerts so that if it came up like this, I would be able to let you guys know about it. You can find it at the survivalpodcast.com and you can scroll down and learn more about it. Or you can go to tspaz.com and you can find all the stuff that I've reviewed. And if you just click on latest reviews, it'll be the one at the top. And if you want to see all the other stuff I recommend, everything's in categories alphabetically there. And even if you don't buy anything, I recommend, if you want to help this show and the work that we do, just start your, your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. And with that, let's drop on into the live feed. And we are live, and I want to welcome Mark Baker from Baker's Green Acres. We're going to be talking about how anybody can farm and homesteading as a solution to America's food crisis. Uh, and with that, hey, Mark, man, welcome to the show. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Long time Excellent, fan. Man. Thank you for coming. Real quick before Mark and I start, guys, just you'll notice on your screen right there, we will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera. In the video comments, just because you see my logo does not mean it's me. In fact, it probably isn't. There's a lot of people running scams in the comments. Instagram, Twitter, everywhere, fake accounts. Please don't fall for it. Um, you want to talk to me, you do that by email. I'm sure Mark will tell you how to talk to him, but I don't want anybody getting scammed, and these platforms don't care about you, so please care for yourself. With that, Mark, hey, man, let's we were, we were shooting the breeze a little bit before we went live. Let's take it back to, like, you mentioned you served some time in the military. I, I did that as well, nowhere near as long as you. Um, but how do you go from there? Like, I guess after that, you go into homesteading, and next thing you know, you're farming. How does that journey happen? Uh, well, I was still active duty, uh, 
my wife and I moved off the base and we got a house that had been a farm. And okay. They had parted off everything but the farmhouse and a barn. And so we, we moved there because we just wanted to be away from the base. Uh, this is my last uh, f- about six years active duty. And then I, I came home one day with some chickens. And <laughs> then <laughs> it got worse from there. I, I yeah. just kept doing things like that. And I was working away from the base. So I would be at work for about three days and then I'd be off for like four or five days. So I had mm-hmm. time. And uh, I really started liking that whole animal thing and just the, you know, being able to utilize my skills to, to do fun things. That's how and, it started. And, and then so that leads eventually, like the chicken is the gateway drug to, uh, yeah. to farming and ranching then? Yeah. Well, uh, during that six-year period that I was at my last duty assignment, uh, a couple of things happened. There was a, a slaughter plant near us that burnt down. And the guy that I was using to slaughter my pigs, he says, well, you're going to have to do it by yourself. I can help you. I'll, sh- I'll show you what I know. And so that began my slaughtering career. And, uh, you know, I started figuring out that it was easier to just do stuff myself than to have other people help me. So uh, I, I, I'm that way. I like to do things myself. And the different processes interest me. So uh, then we, I retired from the Air Force and we moved to Michigan and found a farm right away. At that time in 04, uh, farming wasn't, it wasn't chic then. It was like, why are you, why are you doing that, you know? Yeah. And uh, But I, I was doing it for my own family's health and welfare and we like to work together and I didn't particularly want to work for the the machine anymore. Uh, I knew I always knew I could go back to the machine and I mean like the, the, the military complex, but uh, I didn't want to do it as my first option coming out of the military. Yeah. There is always that temptation to go the GS route after 20 oh, yeah. years. It's, it, there's, oh, yeah. it's always a way to do it if you really want to, but Often people don't want to, and I'd say that's probably more true now than it was 15, 20 years ago. Um, the first time I heard of Baker's Green Acres was years and years ago. There may be some people in this audience who've been around long enough to remember it, but I got an email telling me that some dude's farm was raided by a SWAT team over pigs. And I get a lot of stuff, and you know, half of it's true and half of it's some half-baked crazy shit. And I immediately like went, this is probably some half-baked crazy shit, yeah. but I always checked, and, I, and I'm like, no, wait a minute. This dude's farm got raided because his pigs are the wrong color. Can you kind of rock us through that? Because this was a lot longer of a battle, I think, than people realize, because you basically won it personally eventually, and you were like, you know, that's not really good enough. You don't get to start this in, to the state. The state basically started a fight and then ran away from it when it didn't start going their way. Can you kind of... Walk us through how that all happened. Sure. Yeah, it wasn't quite as dramatic. You know, there was no SWAT team exactly. Yeah. But uh, it started in December. It started for me anyway in December of 2011. Uh, I was making a delivery. Okay, so we're we're an 80 acre general purpose farm. We do uh, pigs. We do uh, cattle. 
We milk some cows. We raise a lot of chickens in the summertime, ducks, mushrooms, biochar, all that stuff. And we were doing pretty good with it. I was making a delivery to one of my restaurants, and this is in Michigan here. And uh, the guy says, hey, didn't you hear? These pigs are illegal now. And the pigs that we were raising were, uh, they're called Mangalitsa. We had imported them from Austria. Uh, you know, it cost a lot of money to bring in the country and all that stuff. And so I said, no, no, that can't be. Uh, this is the restaurant owner that's saying this. Yeah. And he says, oh, well, you better check with so-and-so because I was just briefed on this at the university. And sure enough, they're illegal. So I looked into it and uh, the Department of Natural Resources had made a declaration. Mm-hmm. They made a declaration. This is a department making a declaration. And this is where we were as a society. We thought, uh, those guys don't make law, you know? Yeah. We thought. <laughs> and, uh, so they made a declaration and it filtered down through the ranks and they said, uh, we're trying to combat feral swine and we're doing that by telling all the farmers they have to dispossess their pigs because those pigs could become feral. And, you know, like where you are in Texas, feral pigs, for some people it's a problem. For other people it's a, it's a living. They're delicious. But uh, the Department of Agriculture was trying to say that here in Michigan, uh, feral pigs can do all kinds of terrible things and they can – you know, fly through the air, shoot laser beams out of their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They steal cars. Rob banks, you know, counterfeit money. Oh, wait, that's the government anyway. (laughs) Okay. But when it, when it came to them to talk to me personally, um, their argument didn't make any sense. And I said, no, no, let me bring you up to speed. First of all, you guys don't know what the word feral means because how could my pigs be feral because they're behind fences? Yeah. And you would think that I had uh, insulted their their wife or something because they got so upset that I had the nerve to question them. And so my fur kind of went up a little bit and their fur went. And so it just became this, you do it now. And I said, I'm not going to do it no. ever. And yeah. you can't make me. And then I... You know, I hired a lawyer, and then they, they kind of took me a different direction. And, uh, you know, I had taken an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And, you know, it said in the Constitution in the Fifth Amendment that my life, liberty, and property is protected under due process of law. And last I checked, Department of Natural Resources doesn't make law. No. So. I kind of figured from being in the military that if they had the, if they could arrest me, then they would have just done it. They wouldn't threaten me. And they threatened me with uh, a huge fine. They said uh, $10,000 per animal. I had 70 pigs at the time. So it was, I got it in writing from the attorney general, $700,000 uh, fine that they were seeking against me. They threatened me with arrest. They threatened to uh, put my children in state custody. And that just, you know, they'll never, they can never back down from that. That once you cross that line, you've made an enemy for life. And I will never forget that. Um, 
But anyway, it took three years. I went through three lawyers. Uh, we finally came to within 10 days of our court case, which uh, the, the Department of Natural Resources lawyers would have had to uh, argue in front of God and country and the jury that um, a pig with a straight tail or a curly tail is a feral pig and that I was breaking their rules. And, and anyway, they were going to lose for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it was going <laughs> to set precedence, which it did anyway, because I'm yeah. not letting it go. You know? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. They started the fight. Yeah. You engaged in the fight. They got to the point where they're going to get their ass beat in the fight. And then they tried to run away. Exactly. And you were like, I no, this is bigger than me at this point. I don't freaking think so. Exactly. Exactly. And then they, they, 10 days prior to our court case, they moved for dismissal and they just basically forfeited the game. And so we won by default. Um, but I can't say that it was all me. There was people from across the nation that helped us with legal fees. Uh, we had to have a lobbyist, or at least we felt we did at that mm -hmm. time, because we, we didn't know how to navigate the, the legal system. We didn't know how to navigate, uh, like our senators and our, our state representatives. You know, I come out of the military and my whole time in is in for 20 years. I, I thought that I was coming back to the real world. Yeah. Where, you know, our senators, like they care about us. They're there to fight for us and all. And uh, even all the way through the struggle, I just thought there must be something wrong with me because this lawyer seems to be doing things that are counterproductive to this case. That couldn't be, you know. Yeah. So I had come out of the military actually was the real world because we had a real world mission. And if we didn't do our jobs right and our bosses didn't do their jobs, they got fired instantly. And, uh, you know, so. Anyway, we did, we won that case and along the way I gleaned a whole lot of information about how stuff really works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to sum it up, most of what they were saying is your pigs are a danger because of their appearance. I, so if you had just said, fine, I'll get rid of all these, uh, these heritage breed hogs and bring in, you know, pink pigs. And ran everything the same way. That would have been fine because everybody knows domestic pigs don't go feral. Right. Which is, I've shot a lot of pigs, by the way, Mark, that are kind of pink and kind of gray and white. And, like, we, we shoot feral hogs all the time here in Texas that look pretty damn domestic. And they do start to drift pretty quick as they interbreed with the other ferals. But I, I've shot some pigs that look like they came right off somebody's farm. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm just saying. And their yeah. tails are straight. <laughs> well, one of the things people uh, might remember from this, and I finally figured out what it was, um, they came out with a declaration. They called it the declaratory ruling. And like for farmers, it's like, oh, this it was on a state letterhead. Oh, real yeah. official. Um, had a lot of words in there that us dumb farmers don't understand. But they had a list of nine characteristics And if your pig had even one of those characteristics, they said your pig is feral. That didn't make any sense to me. No. But that's – and, and the, the characteristics, get this. You might remember this. It was like yeah. any 
any pig that has a curly tail. Yeah. Any pig that has a straight tail. Yeah. Any pig that has floppy ears. Yeah. Any pig with erect ears. And then it yeah. got even better. It was like any pig with a distinct skeletal structure. And that was it. There was no qualifiers. Yeah. I didn't tell you how, you know, how distinct. And then uh, there was several others, uh, coloration. <clears throat> and then number nine was my personal favorite. And this, this makes a whole bunch of sense now. It said, other characteristics not currently known to the scientific community. Oh, you know, the trust the science community. Man. Wow. We're, we're bringing scientists in, right? Science. <laughs> so um, what I have determined that that is, is it's like a spell. It's almost like a, uh, like a witchcraft spell. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so uh, the masses come away from it kind of scratching their head like, what does this mean? So what is that? That's confusion. Yeah. And then later on in their declaratory ruling, they said, if you have even one of these pigs, it could cost you $10,000. It could. So confusion and then fear. Yeah. Right. And then when we contacted them and, and there, there was, they had a, a meeting yeah. that we could all drive to. And sit in on the meeting and they, they played a lot of games there. But when we asked them to clarify this in person, no, no, they, they're not going to do that. You just oh, have okay. to no. read the spell. You read the spell. Yeah. And, and, and conjure your mind into believing that they have a power that they do not have. Right. That, that's what it came down to. And, and basically what it said was any pig that we decide for any reason that you can't have, you can't have. That's it. That, that's that's the that's the no bullshit version of the spell. Well, of course, if you put it down that way, then people get angry, right? Oh, yeah. But like, if you put it under the auspice of we're trying to protect the environment, your pig could yeah. cause global warming. He could get out, oh, yeah. get into a Humvee, yeah. and just rev the engine until all the fuel's gone, just to warm the planet. That could happen. We don't know. Science hasn't determined that yet, yeah. but it could happen. So anything we ever determine at any time at any place ever. To fall under this can cost you ten thousand dollars a pig. You better get the properly approved Michigan DNR pig. Yeah. Which also well, that, might someday not be approved because it might the science might change. Well, <laughs> here's something else. This is good good information for people to know. This is uh this is one of their operating methods. Yeah. Uh, like the Department of Natural Resources, Department of Agriculture, any department is privately held. Is people need to know that it's not government. They're like contractors, mm. you know, like military uses contractors. Yeah. They're the same, but they all take an oath, and their oath is to the U.S. Constitution. So that's that's their Achilles' heel. But what they do is they tell you you can't do something, and then they'll uh, you'll say, "Oh, I can't," and they'll say, "But if you really want to do it, we can." give you a license. We can sell you a license. To oh. Here's a bunch of hoops that you'll have to jump through. And once you've jumped and a through And a big old those, check you're going to have to write every yeah. year to yeah, renew your license. Right every year. And that's where they were going. They really wanted all pigs to be what they call under roof. They want them all to be in yeah. a, a factory farming setting and get all these pesky 
peasant farmers get into the cities where you belong and punch that clock at the yeah you know, at the factory. That's that that's their goal. That's the overall goal. And if you had told me this ten years ago, I'd say, well, that sounds a little, you know, conspiratory theorist, a uh, little little too Alex Jones for me, you know. Yeah. My yeah. friend Dave uh, Dave Janda says a little too Alex Jones for me, but yeah. But now uh, we get to this point, and looking back, now I hear the commander in chief say there's going to be food shortages, and I don't see the Department of Agriculture swooping into the rescue and say, "Okay, boys, let's get a plan together to feed all these people." Yeah, they're actually coming together and saying. We don't want you raising any chickens this year because of the yeah. bird flu. Bird they flu. didn't get anywhere with that. No. I mean, if I'm if I was president, and I don't want the job, but if I'm president and, and my people come to me and go, there's going to be food shortages, Mr. President. I've got heads on pikes at that point, and yeah. there better be some there better be some answers as to what we're going to do about it this second, or every head comes off, and I'm replacing you with new heads. Absolutely. Right, and that's military thinking, and. We can commander in chief. Instead, we got a guy eating ice cream saying he's not worried about inflation and probably crap in his pants. So we need to have a solution. People like you and I, Mark, and I know you have an angle you're coming at this from. And part of it is that homesteading is a big part of the answer to this. So let's transition that way toward the solution since we've, we've hammered the problem pretty hard here. And I think we could spend a couple hours talking about things that sound conspiratorial that are now evidently not. Uh, or they, or like, they're not conspiracy theories, they're conspiracy facts, but what do we do about it and how does homesteading play a role in it? Okay. Glad you asked me that question. Um, we got tipped off to the answer, uh, in a, a court hearing that we were in and the number two guy for the number two veterinarian for the state works for the Department of Agriculture tried to convince the jury and the courtroom and the judge and us that farming is for experts only, you know, oh. and you would have to have gone through the university to be an expert and to be able to handle the rigors of farming. Of course, he never farmed. And so he said, farming is not for everybody. And so we, we figured out what they're trying to do is they're trying to put food production in the hands of a few. <clears throat> and so what you learn in the military, if you wind up in an ambush, you run into the firing. You don't run away from the firing because, you know, they're going to make sure you have a long way to run so they can shoot you in the back. You run into the firing. And so we decided that the fix on this is not to try and reason with unreasonable people. It's just to do the opposite of what they've, what they're telling us we must do. They said, we all had to dispossess our pigs and leave it to the experts, you know, to raise mm. them in barns. So we started saying uh, they're never going to change their tune. We have to educate the people uh, how to farm. And at that time, this is in about 2014, there was a small group of people that were kind of interested in farming, but nothing like it is today. And so we developed this program called Anyone Can Farm, and it was sort of a dig at the Department of Agriculture, them saying that only experts can farm. And uh, um, 
you can you can access a lot of information at the anyone can farm experience.com and it tells the whole story which is really kind of interesting and uh it's an effort to pass on techniques of how to farm and help people overcome what you know has i think purposely been moved out of american society you know it's like leave it to the experts all the time mm-hmm. so they have control of the food that sounds a little conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, but, uh, that's, that's where it is right now. Commander in chief saying, Hey, get used to being hungry and you can't do anything about it. Cause you're not an expert. You're not an expert. Yeah. So we've been teaching people the individual processes that go into farming. And then now lately homesteadings. Uh, the word that people like and they, they will relate to that. Farming seems a little big and um, maybe kind of gross in some respects. But homesteading seems, you know, it's a little bit more picturesque, which can be. And nowadays, uh, the, I don't know, the powers that be have made it very easy sell to convince people that you probably ought to have a handle on your food supply. Agreed. Nobody's going to do it for you. And, you know, it's just like anything else that you do. uh, It's a series of steps that you take. And when you have a series of steps mastered or even pretty good at, then then you're farming. And uh, so that's what we set out to do was to teach people how to do this. And lately it's just exploded. Yeah, and you know this pattern is everywhere, and this this is even fr- probably several years ago. I'm sure it was a rerun, but my my wife and I have started homeschooling our grandkids over. Well, one COVID started, and they all came home. We said we just said to our kids because we always wanted to do it, and once they were already out of the school, so why won't we just not send them back? We already know it works now. It made it very easy, um, but she was watching a Doctor Phil rerun on one of the cable channels. And the reason she was watching it was about homeschooling. And one of the objections that Dr. Phil had to the homeschooling was, he goes, well, you know, teaching is a science. Teaching is a science. In other words, you're not qualified to teach because you don't have a special piece of paper from a special entity that was given special powers. And, again, you're back to where you were saying. It's a spell. It's an incantation. I've now invoked the power of science. There, And I am a TV doctor. With a PhD, I have a special wizard's cloak. Therefore, I must be right and you yeah. must be wrong because only someone, you know, gifted in the sciences has yeah. the power to invoke teaching. And obviously, you're doing it wrong. And the lady he's talking to, she's like, Well, I have one kid in Stanford and I got another kid that's running his own business and I got a third one coming up. And like, he's still bullshitting with this. She's got one kid in an Ivy League school, another kid that's a successful entrepreneur, a a third one on the way up can do anything they want, but but he's worried about it's not being done scientifically. And it's the same shit. Like, you can't farm because you're not a magical farmer. You don't have a farmer certification. You didn't go to, you know, so-and-so ag university or something like that. (laughs) As though humans haven't been farming as peasants. Since this all has been civilization. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, you're nailing it. That's that's exactly what it is. We even offer certification through the farm, and it's it is sort of a jab. You know, oh, you guys do. Well, I got my magic sticker. Yeah, yeah. You get a piece of paper saying you're certified Baker's Green Acres certification. Yeah, and it's kind of a that's the way you break spells like that is you mock them. Yeah, you mock them. You make fun of them, and they 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 can't deal with that. Can you talk about maybe a little bit about the benefits to homesteading as a lifestyle? Uh, oh yeah, there's lots of them. Um, boy, uh, where could I? <clears throat> uh, let's just talk about <clears throat> health. Let's just talk about a person's health. Um, a lot of the foods that we're buying at the stores, uh, their primary uh, their primary concern when they put that food on the shelf is the bottom line if it's going to make money. So the less that can go into that food, uh, the better their bottom line. Health of the people that are going to eat it, uh, they don't care about that. That's not even a concern. Uh, and then you'll have people that have come online and said, oh, our concern is the health of the people that we're serving. But uh, a lot of times it's it's a pretty weak uh, testimony that they have. But if you go to the farm and you're and you're looking to see what your farmers are feeding, uh, then you can get an idea of the health of the animals that you're going to be eating, the health of the produce that you're going to be getting. Look at the kids that the farmer has. If they're in pretty good shape, that's an indication too. So the health aspect is there. Uh, and I, I think what I've discovered is I think there's like a, uh, a vacuum in the human heart or psyche, however you want to put it. And when you're creating your own food, there's just a satisfaction to it. There's a security that comes with it. There's a, I don't know, what, what would the word be? It's your, a confidence that comes from, from doing that. You know, it's, it's really good work and you develop a thirst for it. You, Let's say you raise a pen of pigs and then you learn how to process them and then you learn how to make sausages and you learn how to make hams. Then you just like, you go hog wild. It's like, oh, I need to know how to do this and this and this. And the homesteading world is full of processes that a person can learn. There's probably a million of them, probably a million things. And, uh, and then there's opportunity for people that get into homesteading that master a process to pass it on to someone else. I mean, uh, I live in northern Michigan, uh, northern lower Michigan. In the Detroit area, there's six million people there that live on a quarter acre. And they are all convinced that I can't farm here because all I have is a quarter acre. Six million people. That's a massive demographic. So what we've done here is we've set aside a quarter acre that has a small building on it. It was there when we got the place. And we're going to do a mock-up of a quarter acre homestead and just show how much stuff we can pack on there, how much food we can produce. And it, it's going to be kind of neat because we'll we'll catalog the data that we get off of that. And 
six million. I mean, we've got a food crisis looming on the on the horizon, right? Six million people in Detroit. Let's say we could get ten percent of those people to put in a twenty by forty garden in their backyard. You know how much produce that would be, or if they would all raise six chickens, or you know, you get the idea. Um, we we want to get the masses going on this, and that way it, it frees us from the direction they're taking us with industrial ag. Actually, is 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 not good. So, what else? Uh, you learn how to fix things. You learn how to make things. Uh, you become, everybody's got creative talent. Um, but a lot of times the jobs that we, we take and then we're making our payments and car payments and insurance payments and stuff. It's not very creative work that we're doing, but we don't have time in the day to create. Uh, a homestead could be just like a part time job at first. That's what I recommend. That's how I started. And then as you progress in it and you have more processes going, they start making money. Then you don't need a job off farm. You can just stay home. So that's another good one, too. You can stay home. Um, lots of things. Lots of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like there's there's so many components to it. There's an emotional boost, et cetera. And you were talking about how some people prefer <laughs> the term homesteading over farming. And I think a lot of that has to do with motivation. If I want to feed myself and my family, I see myself as a homesteader. If I want to feed myself, my family, and my neighbors for a profit, then I start seeing myself as a farmer. I think that's the mental component in people's heads. But traditionally, people even who did not have a cash crop, if you want to call it that. America and most of the world was made primarily of farmers because farming for your family is feeding a family with the land. And so then you're farming. I guess that we, yeah. we've kind of changed the way that word is used. If you look, we've changed it into meaninglessness in, in, in pop culture where you buy this product and it says it's from so-and-so family farms or some shit. And there's a picture of a tractor and a son and a little cow or a chicken and, None of that shit exists from where that food comes from. There's absolutely zero connection yeah. to reality. You know, Sanderson family farms or something, and the little pig, and the, the, the pig farm is a giant concrete building that pigs lay in a pen that they can't even turn around in. Right. And, and so we've ruined, like, that's what they do. They ruin words. And I'm with you. I have people all the time saying, you know, you know maybe you should use this word instead. You know, because, or, you know, like this word is tainted now. And I'm like, no, that's, that's a perfectly good word. And I'm with you with running into the ambush. I will not let you take the word from us. You don't no. get to redefine words. That's 1984 shit. Yeah. <laughs> it amazes me. People do not understand that that's what you're looking at. When you start changing the meaning of words and taking away words and saying there's words you can't use anymore. That's 1984, and you're back to your sorcery shit, right? It's a spell. If you say yeah. this word, you're a bad person. You're ultra MAGA or some yeah. other nonsense. What the hell is ultra MAGA? I mean, it's not right. pro or anti-Trump. They just say this is a stupid made-up terminology that they've used it to another incantation to scare people. Yeah. Well, homesteading is uh, it's a state of mind, too. Uh, you might not have all these processes going on on your place right now. Yeah. 
but you could see a time where you can use any word you want and nobody can hold it over you. Like th- th- this was a perfect example during the, the pandemic, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. the guy at the store, the, the Walmart greeter guy was telling people what they needed to do and people complied with that. Yes. Why? Because they, they needed to get in that store to get food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but we, they were complying. We, like there's two ways you comply. Like, sir, I need you to put your mask on. Okay. That's one way. Then the other way is like doing everything you were told by that guy when you came into the store when there's no one there to do anything about it. It's the it's the person that sits at the red light at three o'clock in the morning on the flat four way and yeah. you can see for a dozen miles in all directions and there's nothing and nobody and they wait for the red light to change because they've been psychologically conditioned to believe that light has an authority over them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people learn things though during the, the pandemic. I kind of, or I learned it from the struggle that I went through with the state. Yeah. Um, but I, I learned that if you can't do anything to me, then why should I do what you want me to do if I don't want to? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I would just walk past the guy and yeah. they'd take one look at me and say, uh, we're not That's gonna, probably not worth it. Yeah, we're not going to chase him into the store. And so, I, you know, none of these, a lot of these authorities don't have the authority that we think they do, but we give it to them when we comply with them. Yeah. You know, one of the beauties of the American public, not all of them, but a lot of them, is they are extremely hard to govern. And our government is set up so that they are very limited in what their authority is. But we've got situations in Michigan here, like with with townships actually telling people what color they're going to paint their house, you know, and and people do it. Yeah. And uh, and that, that's part of farming too, and homesteading is there's a lot of perceived. Uh, regulation around it, and it is just perceived. You may have somebody at a township level say, you can only have four chickens and no roosters. But um, what saved us through the whole pig thing, which was big, made national news, it was a big deal. There was a lot on the line. We could have lost a lot of stuff. Um, What saved us was the blanket of protection that you and I took an oath to protect and defend, and that is the U.S. Constitution. Now, my lawyers didn't want to go there because... That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it it's very interesting. It, you, you, They wanted to argue it on uh, whether it was uh, void for vagueness or capricious in nature. Never mind, uh, hey, the Fifth Amendment says that your property is your property if it's not a controlled substance, you know? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> But we were the ones that hit the press the test button on that fifth amendment and it worked. And that that's what makes this testimony from me uh, very powerful is we put everything on the line to see if the bill of rights, to the U S constitution is valid. Now I know you get a lot of commentators that say, Oh, the constitution it's gone. It's this. No, it is. If you say it is, it is. If you don't, draw that sword and swing it. 
but it is uh, it is not by any means gone. It uh, my constitutional rights are in place and they protect me. And like in my township and in my county, even in this state, uh, and I can I can back this up with uh, really good examples. Um, they don't mess with me because they know I know the power of the Constitution. It, it's not because I'm, you know, John Rambo. It's because of my constitutional rights and I know how to use them. And this is part of anyone can farm is to instruct people on what their constitutional rights are as pertains to growing food and living a, you know, a, an intentional life. It's, it's very, very powerful. It's what I call status jujitsu. And it's, if you're going to have magical incantations, they go in both directions, right? So they, they build their whole framework under this system so the only way to fight that system is to turn that system back onto itself. So when you, when you're a, a good martial arts practitioner up to a point anyway, you can turn the strength of your opponent back against your opponent. So they make this magical incantation and then you make this response to it. They kind of short circuits the claim. And that doesn't, the problem is when you say, say it that way, like you just did and like I just did. People get the wrong idea that the guy will show up and you'll assert this authority and then they'll go away. Well, sometimes, but sometimes you have to go in a multi-year court battle. And then that multi-year court battle is expensive. And, and, and you were fortunate to have a good community that was like, he's not in this shit alone. But for every story of a victory like that, there's a hundred defeats of people that tried to do it. And so it, it doesn't always work. It requires a consorted and sometimes very expensive effort to get it done. But the reason it's worth doing is because this is not about Mark Baker anymore. Like what you eventually got done is beyond your own state at this point. Like it, it's yeah, not even just your local community. It, it's, it's, it pretty much set precedent for this, for the country. It did. It did. And, and it's very important that you say that. Because, uh, there was, there was one guy and, and I was a unique situation. <clears throat> I had just gotten out of the military a few years before that and, um, I wasn't really getting along very well with the other children out here in the Sand world. Yeah. So I stayed home a lot and I'm, I'm Irish and, uh, I like to fight, I guess, I, or I used to. And, um, so they thought that I was just a farmer and, uh, and everyone else, everyone else just complied with them. And what we would have right now, 10 years later, if I had complied and see, this is the importance of just one guy standing up. And, and I, I'm not afraid to say this because I want all of you all to do this too in, in your, in your situation, you know, yeah. have courage. But in the declaratory ruling, they wrote in a blurb, and that blurb said, uh, animals that are non-native species. Okay. Okay. So any non-native species, they said, could become feral, and that would be bad for the environment. So they, they gave themselves the ability later on to say that, oh, that black and white cow you got there, that Holstein, yeah, that's not a native species. No, 
that that was brought over from wherever. Chickens. Uh, and you can't have that. Chickens, that's right. You know, that was the direction they were going. Cats, not native. Us? Yeah, we're not native here. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what they had given themselves the the luxury to do. And if we had not stood up, my family and then a lot of my extended family across the country, I mean, we really had people from all over the country that stood up with us, uh, some some big name people too, and said, no, we're not going to let this happen because if these departments get the authority to say your pig is illegal because we say so, what is next? It was a real slippery slope. And so people understood that right away. Um, there was a lot of donations that came in. Uh, our, our lawyers were kind of necessary to help us navigate the process, but they weren't in it to win. They were not in it to win. They were in it to compromise. To bill. And to set to issue invoices and bill you to represent you in court, right? Like, right. And to put up a plausible defense, right? Like that anybody would, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get thrown, you wouldn't get disbarred for malpractice. But it doesn't mean that you're in it to win, right? Like you, you, you legitimately represented your client. Like that's another incantation. Right? Yeah. I legitimately represented my client according yeah. to the books. Look, well, I think we're all kind of in on it. You know, the, the yeah. judge. And the two lawyers, the one for the state and the one that we hired, they were on a first name basis. Mm. Like we, we were definitely the outsiders on this, but we had a ton of support from people coming into the courtroom. But you know, if I had to do it over again with what I know now, uh, and we have instructed people on how to proceed when something like this happens, and it's actually very simple. And there was a guy. You're going to know this name, Jerry Boykin, that told me, I mean, he in in Jerry Boykin fashion, that what is that oath of office for if you're not going to use it? You know, but these uh, people that take this oath of office, uh, it is actually a contract that they make with us, the employer. And if they step out from underneath uh, the terms of their employment, then you can, they can be sued for breach of co- breach of contract, mm. and anybody can look at it and say, "You're going to lose. You took an oath. That's your terms of employment to protect the constitutional rights of these people. If you step out from underneath there, you are going to lose." And uh, the people that we've instructed on this, we instruct them to uh, send a letter of intent to sue for the person's net. Worth, and I don't Whatever have a problem with that. Whatever I mean, it is, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I actually lost people along the way in my 20 years of service, and they were fighting to protect and defend the Fifth Amendment. <clears throat> and so, I think that's worth this township supervisor's net worth, I, and more. But that's all we can take from it. Yeah. <clears throat> and in every case, every case, they back down. Because they don't even want to secure a lawyer to, yeah. to go through the process. Yeah. So that will be part of this, this new information that's coming out is how to navigate this and how to, you know, regain your, your freedom that you have as an American citizen. You know, what this makes me think is that 
generations of this country have been raised without the most important information they could have, like what it actually means to live in this place, how you actually feed yourself, right, how you assert your rights, how you stand up for your rights, how to fight, given the situation, like you say you're Irish and like to fight. I mean, you're in central Pennsylvania, Ukrainian, you know, like fighting was part. But like the way you fight in this situation is you don't punch the guy in the mouth. That's that you're going you're now you're playing their game. The state's game is violence. The state is violence. So when you yeah. use violence, you're using their weapon of choice and you will lose. Right. So you have to know how. So with that in mind, kind of segueing a little bit again back to solutions, I, I, I find having my grandkids here for homeschooling on my little duck farm to be an amazing thing. I think kids learn things in this environment that they would never learn anywhere else. And they can be academic. They can be civic. They can also just be rooted in like, this is where food comes from. Yeah. Right. You know, like I remember the first time we had our blackberries come in and my grandson was picking them. And it was like several weeks later. And we said something about not, you know, blackberries came up because I'll just go pick some. Like, well, they're gone for the year, bud. And until he experienced that, he didn't even understand, like, this is a seasonal crop. Like, it comes and it goes. Like, we spread it out as much as we can with variety, but they're gone now, buddy. You don't get any more until next year. And, like, that's a really important lesson. How do you feel about the value of raising kids in this type of environment? I, I don't think there's a better training aid for children. I really don't. Um you know, you can discipline a kid on how to make their bed and clean their room a bunch of times, but it's nothing like the the real life uh, lessons that come from life and death on a homestead. Nothing like it. Mm-hmm. Like my kids, uh, we had eight kids, and uh, one of the things that we do on this farm that kind of set us aside a little bit uh, was processing. So we, we have, we built a butcher shop and so we, we butcher animals all the time, you know, and my kids got involved with that at an early age. And so a lot of the animals that we butcher, you know, were almost pets here for, for an early part of their life, but the kids, they can process that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, there's no mystery to my kids where pork chops come from. No mystery at all. You know, and I think it's part of how they turn kids into vegans at a young age. If a kid doesn't know that, yeah, and all of a sudden you explain that Wilbur's turning into bacon, well, all of a sudden bacon's icky. But if a kid grew up understanding this is this animal, this is how it's raised, this is how it's cared for, this is its purpose, then when you tell them that, they go, yeah, I know, I, I help make bacon. That's a much better answer than oh my god I got to run home and tell my parents that they're they're evil they're killing the planet because we they they eat pigs. Yeah, yeah I you know some of my kids have have uh, opted to go to school like in uh, their junior year of high school so they can sure. play sports and yeah and at first we thought gee they're going to be walking into a lot of weirdness because we've got furries in the school here and all kinds of stuff like that. But my kids haven't been There's brought up. There's people out there that don't. I'm not, you're going to have to Google it, guys. You're going to have to find out what that is for yourself if you don't know. What oh, yeah. Please go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Don't, don't tell them either. Don't tell them. Don't uh, well, them <laughs> we'll look back on it fondly someday, Jack. We'll be yeah. like, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I don't think it'd be around long. But uh, the kids have uh, 
a foundational understanding of all the things that are around them. And they, they pick that up on their own being on the farm. Plus having me and my wife as parents, you know, it's a good opportunity, uh, to teach kids things. It's just really good. Like if the kids coming and saying good night to you and it's, you know, nine 30 at night and it's dark outside and you say, Oh, did you remember to get the eggs? Oh no. Do you want to use my flashlight? <laughs> yeah. So they, they learn to be attention to detail and, and, uh, be smart kids. Yeah. My grandson this morning, uh, I, I, since I can't really have a real pond in the ground here, I use these, uh, mixing trays for the ducks and he moved them and he took some initiative. He just, I'm, I'm battling a bobcat right now. So I'm keeping them closer to the building to try to draw them out. This is a middle of the day bobcat that just saunters out in the middle of the day and takes animals. Oh. So he had moved them too far out. So I said, you need to move them back by the house. He had filled two of them. They take about a minute and a half to, to, uh, to fill. He goes to my, my wife and goes, grandma, I'm being punished. I'm like, he had to, re- he said, work an extra three minutes. And I'm thinking, you know what? But it's good that you learn this shit now because someday you're going to go get a job and you're probably going to work for somebody like me. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. when you're 11. It ain't funny when you're 21. Right. And they learn that too, the value of a work ethic. And I think that's part of, you know, I grew up, I guess we were homesteaders. I guess we were preppers. I, I, I don't know what you would. I was a you know, grand, grandson of a coal miner and the son of a bootleg coal miner in rural Pennsylvania. Um, you know, we had about a quarter acre garden. We had a small homestead. It was just where we lived. We didn't call it any of that. And I think growing up that way is why when I went to work, I naturally excelled beyond the people around me. To, to, even at times like you get in a certain kind of job, and I'm like, hey, you need to slow down a little bit. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about kind of that union, central PA union mentality. Like we don't need to be done with work too soon. You know, you're going to mess it up. I went to work for one summer. I worked for uh, Esplenda uh, with uh, tree trimming for like the highway crews and stuff oh, like yeah. that. And I had a few talking to's about you're working too fast. You know, you're, you're too in a hurry. You need to slow down, boy, stuff like that. Like, but when you get into the right environment, that is an extreme advantage. Like you will find employment that recognizes that aggressiveness of willingness to do more. And I think if you grow up in that environment, like, can I go fishing today? Well, you, as long as you bring something home, that's what I used to hear. Like, honest to God, like we need some stuff done around here, but if, if you're going fishing, if you come back with fish, that's okay. Yeah. Like that, and you start thinking, well, I think I can actually, bring any home today because you know how are they going to be like you actually realize there's a consequence here like you know i'm going to get double the work tomorrow if i don't come back with something kids just don't grow up that way anymore in most of america but and i say this all the time people didn't change behavior changed the kids today that we talk about we said they're weak and they can't handle things they're the same human beings we were and our parents were they're just in a different environment and so we choose the environment our kids grow up in, in spite of the other incantation that we supposedly don't. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, you can build it. And I, I, I got to tell you this, people are flocking to this lifestyle right now. They're leaving the, the you know, the high, well, we were all taught, like, you want the high-end job to make as much money as you can, and no matter what the cost, make the money. 
sacrifice yeah. the your life, sacrifice your family life, all that stuff. Well, people are saying, hey, wait a minute, why am I doing this? You know, this was marketed to me, but this isn't a good thing. I prefer a rural lifestyle, less money, more control of my food, less time to just goof off with the kids or more time to goof off with the kids. And um, I, we're seeing a lot uh, different caliber. People are coming now too. Um, they there's the boomers that are retiring and moving to the homestead, but then there's the, who was after the boomers? I forget. Gen X. Like Gen X. Gen X. Uh, they're, they're, they know they're not going to have the lifestyle that I was able to accrue. And they're, they're going right to the homestead. We see a lot of them. We train a lot of them, actually. Yeah. And then I think millennials are heading that way, too. Like, they're the ones that are really going to get hosed. Gen X, we did our – I'm Gen X. I, I'm not sure when you were born, but – I'm a boomer. Uh, you're a boomer? You were yeah. born in the 60s? 1960. Yeah, you're a boomer. You're barely a boomer. You're heading you're yeah. you're a tweener. <laughs> yeah. You're between the second baby boom and the and the Xers, right? But the, 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 the millennials are the kids, you know, they're born in the nineties. They're in their thirties now. They're, they're, they realize like a lot of this promise is never coming and they're bifurcating, in my opinion. They're going into this group that says to the government, we want you to fix it all. You broke it, they broke it, make it right for me. And about half of them are the ones you're talking about. They're like, well, I, I guess I need to do something. And I think that's a general way society works. You end up with people that want – we all have problems sooner or later in our lives. And you end up with really two primary groups. Fix the problem for me or I need to fix the problem. And those two groups during times of prosperity, if you go in kind of the fourth turning in good times, they coexist rather well. Because the ones that will solve their own problems, as long as you don't take too much from them or get in their way too much and basically leave them alone, they'll make that deal and I'll go on my way and you can be useless and weak over here. Stay out of my way. When you get into hard times like we're heading into now with massive inflation, national debt, all these other problems, what happens is the people that bifurcate to the side of I want somebody to fix it for me, well, the people they ask to fix it for have no We know they have no solutions. There's nothing they can do. So they need an enemy to explain why I can't fix it for you. So it's those people over there. That, so now the biggest thing people like you and I simply want, I'll deal with anything if you leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Most fundamental human right there is the right to be left alone. And you get into the point of, well, we can't allow that anymore. I have to tell you what kind of pig you can have. I have to tell you you're not allowed to be a farmer. I have to tell you teaching is a like, and they stop leaving the other side alone. And that's when you get into a place like we are now where there's this conflict and then complete lunacy. Like the people that won't leave us alone. Now they're going like you and I were talking offline before we started. If somebody would have told you some of this crap that's going on, like furries or drag show for kids or whatever, like you had been like 10 years ago, you said you are out of your freaking mind. This is America. Yeah. Right. That's not going to happen. But now it is, but that's that, that's that thing, and the people that you're working with and you're seeing, they're the ones that they're still on the side of, well, I'm going to do something about it. And I think it's the one thing you can do about it because you look at successful business, any successful business that's a real-world brick-and-mortar type business, in the end, it's a real estate business, right? McDonald's is a real estate business. It's not yeah. a hamburger business. The hamburger and the fries and the garbage food, pays for real estate. McDonald's holds more real estate than any other entity other than the Catholic Church. 
right. worldwide, right? So every business, my, my father ran a used tire shop and gas station, but used tires and, and, and the gas paid for the real estate that eventually when he left, that was where the big settlement of money and the value of the business came at the end was this real estate that appreciated. Farming, homesteading is a real estate business because if I can take my property and instead of having it be a hole into which I throw money, I can make it produce enough income and food for me that it's a net gain every year. Then I've now got an asset instead of a liability. And my asset is also going to provide me a place to live, a buffer from the stupidity around me if I locate it in the right place. And it becomes my little, my little citadel. And so I think that people are kind of snapping to that. And I think like we're on YouTube, just two dudes talking here, but there's a lot of stuff on YouTube, including from you. And myself of, here's how you do this. And I think that the beauty of this time that we're in, in spite of all the lunacy, is that there's so many examples. So when somebody says, well, you can't do that, the person's like, well, I just watched 40 other people do it yesterday. Yeah. Right? So I know that I can. And so now we take the person that says, I need to solve a problem, and you lay out a solution, and you show other people using the solution. And then they head off in that direction. And that's where I want to go with you next, because you have – an initiative called Anyone Can Farm. Can, can you talk about how that helps new homesteaders start going down this path? Okay, yeah, good question. Um, well, homesteading is a compilation of processes. So, uh, you know, nailing in a staple, that is a sub-process of fencing. And okay. fencing is a sub-process of uh Animal husbandry, because you have to keep your animals in. I'm just using that as an example. Mm-hmm. And water distribution is a sub-process of the whole thing. Uh, feed distribution, all these things. And people that have never done this think, well, I don't know how to do that. But I would say to them, you didn't know how to program computers either. You didn't come out of the box knowing how to do that. You had to learn that. This you can learn, too. And what we're finding is because of everything that's happening in the world, and and I think there's like an internal change that's going on in people. It wasn't just the woo flu that did it. It it, it was the buildup to it, and now all the craziness that we're seeing after after it, and people are finding – that they want solace somehow and they're, they're like their subconscious is figuring out how to do it. And it's, it's telling them get a piece of land and figure out how to homestead. So anyway, anyone can farm is an effort to pass on information in little pieces. So if you don't know how to build a fence, here's a fencing course. If you don't know how to raise chickens, here's a course. And it's, it's just me and my sons and my daughters and my wife. Um, you don't know how to make cheese. Here you go. Here's a cheese making thing. Very preliminary. Don't know how to milk a cow. We do that. And every time we get around to it and we can make a video course on something, then we add it to the anyone can farm experience, uh, com. That's the, the website. And then there's a place you can go in and become a plus member. And it's 99 cents a day, I think, to do that. 
15 bucks a month and you have access to all that information. And this is, this is new. We didn't used to do it this way. The way we used to do it was all in person. So you had to come to Baker's Green Acres and you had to be working right with me. You know, if you're going to butcher a pig, you had to be right there with me. And we have a lot of success with that as well because a lot of people are willing to do the, uh, the in person classes, which are very good. Um, but now my second son, Joe, has come back to work with us, and he's the one that's making all these videos that are appealing to the, the Gen Xers and, uh, and putting these, these courses together that people can, you know, if they're members of the tribe, then, then they have access to that. So that's what anyone can farm is in a, in a nutshell. It's also like a community. We call it a tribe. And I, I like that. Um, I got a little pushback on that at first. You know, tribe, ooh, that's making fun of Indians. No, I like Indians. You know, I like the way Indians do. Like the chief does not want his braves to fail. The chief is going to, you know, exercise tough love with his braves. Like he's going to kick them in the rear end so that they will do things right and stay motivated um, I was going to name it the clan there for a little while, but that wouldn't go over too well either. I thought, no, no, don't yeah. help him, Mark. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. been around now for um, anyone can farm has been, we're going into our 10th year and uh, the classes that we've been doing have, we've had a, a pretty high level of success because, you know, having been military, I'm always trying to re- I'm always trying to train up my replacement. So it's, it's like too late for the other guys now because we've already trained too many people. And, you know, I kind of approach everything as though it's a war, right? Um, what are they going to attack next? And we knew that they were going to attack processing, butchering. So they always look for a choke point, And we saw during the Wu flu that they shut down butcher shops. Why? Because they could. And if they can, they will. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so now we've got a whole bunch of people that we've trained that don't need a butcher shop. All they need is a tree limb and a knife and a 22 rifle and they're good to go. It might not be perfect, but um, there's a lot of, you know, self fortitude that comes from being able to do that, you know, it's a tough process, but it's a very necessary process. You know, I want to expand on something you're saying there about this. Like, everybody seems to think now this whole explosion is from the whole COVIDs or whatever, and it's not. It it, it had its genesis a long time ago, and I'm, I'm going to bring something up on the screen for people right now. This is the show notes from an episode that I did in 2013, and, and it was called The Bright Future of Homesteading in America. July 24, 2013, and I'm not going to read all the bullets. I want to read uh, two sets of sub-bullets here. Today's movement is driven by multiple factors, concerns about the future, the quality of our food, the environmental damage of big agriculture, concerns about GMOs, retaining what was lost in generations X and Y for everyone. That's the, the, the boomers and the Xers and yeah. what have you. Uh, a change in fundamental understanding of wealth and understanding of what is actually beautiful a desire to regain control of our lives. What will sustain the modern homesteading movement? The I can do this almost anywhere mentality, 
the Internet and info sharing. Opposition will strengthen the movement. It is being done before an economic crisis. The problems of modern society are more evident than ever. Automation and technology will make doing it easier. The biggest reason it is simply becoming accepted by most people. Now that's, that's 2013. Wow. That's also right about the time that you started doing the classes that you're talking about with anyone can farm. Nice. And it. so this was all evident. And the other thing I said in that episode was that it's, this is different than what was done. Like the, if you go back, like the 1930s, this happened, but it happened in the middle of the depression. No one had done any pre-work or there was no ability to share it. And the seventies people did it because of stagflation and everybody still thought we were going to get nuked. And that's yeah. kind of another thing you know, all over again, right? I mean, you and I remember the drills in school about getting under your desk and putting your head between your legs like that was going to save you or something. Uh, we've got a whole generation of people that grew up without that thread in their head. But to me, the big difference this time around is all this momentum was already there and that opposition will strengthen it. Now, I could have never said what that opposition would look like because the clown world that we're seeing it from is just, it is, like you said earlier, it's it's a movie that you don't even think anybody would really make because no one would have believed it what we're dealing with now. But I do think that we're in kind of this critical mass now where everybody at least knows somebody that's doing it. Everybody knows somebody that's doing homesteading, you said? Yeah, that like everybody at least knows somebody that's, yeah, everybody that yeah. knows somebody that's, that's that's taking some part of this life and making it kind of part of their own. Yeah. We're yeah. like 20 years ago, you did, you know, you might know one weird guy that lived out in the country or something, but now it's like everybody yeah. knows somebody that's, 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 you know, at least have a, a big garden in the backyard and a couple chickens. And I, I, you know, I look at like, uh, like a cook, even like the cooking shows in mainstream media. Like if you watch a uh, Gary, like he has his own little chicken coop in the backyard and all, like it's become a cool thing and it didn't used to be. Yeah. Yeah, well, and there's a sense of urgency too that we didn't yeah. see before, you know. And I, you know, I got to leave that to the powers that be. They've done that. They're they've used fear and constantly fear, fear, fear. And so once you you do this, a lot of that fear dissolves because it no longer affects you. You know, it no longer has any relevance. And yeah. it wouldn't be the first time that food has been used as a weapon against people. Again, Ukraine, yeah. child of Ukrainian immigrants. I can tell you yeah. all about food being used as a weapon, right? It, um. it seems like, I mean, I'm just a spectator on this. I don't have any inside poop at all. But it seems like on the the, the kind of the, the illegal communist left, it seems like they're running out of plays to me. And they're, a lot of their people are just kind of disappearing. <clears throat> and I, I don't look at that and say, okay, well, we're going to win. I just say it doesn't really matter. I'm never going to let myself be in a position where either side can dictate to me, you know, where I can eat and sleep. <clears throat> I guess I am kind of a prepper in a way, but it's just yeah. – Oh, just a Boy Scout thing, really, in me. It's a survivalist. Again, I don't let people take the word away from me, right? So um, I had a good friend years ago that I did some work with <coughs> and uh, did martial arts training with named Valerie Asanoff. He was a he was actually a KGB agent when the Soviet Union fell apart. And yeah. prior to working for the KGB, he was actually a, a Russian uh, judo Olympian. 
And so this guy was a really interesting guy to talk to. And we were talking one day about the mentality uh, of, of U.S. versus Russians in the Olympics and how the Russians were so dominant at the time that you know he was involved. He's old like us, right? And he said, you guys were trained to try to win as quickly as possible. We were trained specifically in combat sports like judo or boxing or anything like that. Survive. You train to survive. If you survive long enough, then you find a way to win. Instead of trying to just go straight, because that's when you make mistakes, when you go straight for the throat, for instance. So you, you train with a survival mindset. How do I counter? How do I wait? How do I, how do I make my opponent impatient so that they move too quickly? And that kind of applies to what we're doing here. If you want to try to just go in and roll over everything and take over, that's their model. Again, you don't go to war with your, your opponent's weaponry because then they beat you. But what we're, we're seeing now is more and more people being strategic. Like, I'm not going to go buy a house in downtown Dallas and then bitch that they won't let me have a chicken. I live in a place right now where it's like I can have all the chickens I want. I can do anything I want. But I'm only 25 minutes from Fort Worth. So now I'm in a defensive, like, no, you don't get to annex my little unincorporated area, right? That, that's a much easier fight than I want to unannex myself once it's already been yeah. done. So people are being strategic. They're thinking about where they're going. They're moving to places. Like a lot of the whole enforcement is complaint-driven. So if you have a big enough place and it's surrounded by trees, then Karens don't make phone calls and you don't ever hear from anybody. I think people are switching on to this. This I've been so- sounding the get out, get out, get out alarm from the, the uh, I call them flashpoint cities now. I've been doing that since 08 when I started, but I've been doing it heavily for the last five years. Like, And I, when the COVID thing happened, I'm like, so you, and the COVID and then the Black Lives Matter protests happened. I'm like, so now you know. You know the places that are dangerous. You know the places that are going to degrade fast. You know the places that are going to be going to oppression quickly. If you're there, get out. And I think people are doing that. And then you end up in a decentralized network, right, of of homesteaders and farmers. And uh, it's so beyond just the homesteading and the farming, too. It is the entire concept of, well, the more we have of each other, the less we need of them. And that is a very difficult thing to fight against. When you have a, a unified, centralized movement, if, it, you're, if your movement has an official entity, right, that's the leader of all, well, you're easy to squish. When you have all these little things, the TSP community, uh, you've got your anyone can farm tribe that you're doing, you've got all these little communities all over, it, it, it's a totally different form of, I hate to use the term, but warfare. Because I feel like we're in a war. Because you come after my children, you come after my, my ability to choose what I eat, what goes into my body. You've declared war. I didn't. Right. You declared war, and I'm going to fight back, in, and I'm going to use the art of war. I'm not going to let you choose the time, place, and method of battle. I'm going to do all of those things so that you don't have that advantage. You're inherently larger than me. You've got more money than me, but you're also limited by your, again, like you talked about, your own spells and incantations. Yeah. Yeah, and they're a mercenary force, too. They're yeah. not fighting for their homes or their families. They're just employees of, you know, an entity like a department that is not even real. It's not even a real thing. No, so it's not. none of them are dedicated to what they do. But it's I tell you what, they get pretty, they get pretty, uh, raw around the collar when you publish their names. 
Oh yeah, they live. They don't. They like don't that. seem to have a problem <laughs> with going to the newspaper and using my name. Yeah, and telling everybody, you know, a lie about what I'm supposedly doing. But then when I get on the internet and I flash their picture and I say, "This is where she lives." Yeah. Oh, they get real worried about that. They're like, "I didn't sign up for this." Yeah. You know, it's it's like they the bureaucrat class. I call them the parasite class. I agree. They they grow up with this uh, this notion that they're untouchable, and if that were true, we wouldn't. You know, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson said, "When the people fear their government." You have tyranny. When the government fears the people, you have liberty. And I, I think the pendulum is swinging the other way now because people are looking at government saying, "Hey, you were never really there for us anyway." And yeah, you, what did but we get you out of this live deal? amongst us. Yeah. What did we get out of this deal? Yeah. I mean, what did we get out of this deal? I, I, I see, of, you got you got people you know our age going. I, I spent tens of thousands of dollars to send my child to your vaulted university system. They came home hating everything that I stand for and everything that I did and hating me and my, my morality and telling me how wrong I am when I'm the one that paid for the bill so that they could go live the American dream you promised. Or, you know, I, I, I'm, you got disabled veterans that are wondering why money's going to Ukraine. Yeah. Like, and then, so like again, I, like I said, all these entities kind of coexist peacefully in good times, even though they, there might be that underlying resentment, but, Okay, you're leaving me alone, and I can basically do what I want, and things are okay. But now, when I got to go in and get a quarter pound of meat at the store because I can't afford a pound, and you won't leave me alone, that starts that pendulum going back the other way. It's the hard, hard men. You know, hard times create strong men. Strong men yeah. create good times, and it just keeps circling back around. And I think that we're on the the other end of that. I was talking to my dad about this today, though, before we got on with each other, and I was. He's talking about how it always comes back and he was, you know, he won't use the internet. He, he's, 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 he's an older boomer, right? And, uh, he, he was saying about he wanted a, a, a graph of the stock market since the depression. I'm like, oh, I pull that right up. And he was shocked because I think you, you get short term memory at a certain point, you know, and I said, dad, you know that the time between the high point where the market crashed in 1929, it didn't hit that high again until 1964. And he was like, I did not remember that that way. And I think that like, so even though you and I are telling people times are swinging the other way, that swing can take a long time. That was 24 years, I guess if my math's right, I don't know. I can't think in my head right now. I lost the two dates, but it was more than 20 years. Yeah. And so if we look for more than 20 years from 2022, you're like 2040, 40, you know, 2042 that we could be living with this. And, and that's why I think doing what we're talking about is so important because what got our grandparents through the Great Depression? The, the very things we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My, my grandfather, one time I found these uh, rat traps out in the shed, big, thick oak they used to make them out of back then, yeah. you know, and they all had these holes in them. And so I went to him, I said, what's, what's the holes for, Grandpa? And he said, those are squirrel traps. And I'm like, what? He goes, well, you take them and you put a nail through the hole, nail them to a tree. Yeah. And you put peanut butter in them, you set them, and the squirrels go in and you get squirrels to eat. And I said, how'd it work? He said, really good for the first year. 
because you know everybody did it and there weren't so many squirrels anymore. Oh, um, that, see, that, yeah. that, that was how you know, but that's how they got through that yeah. was understanding how to live off what the land provided. And I, I hate to say it, I think we're about to go through it again. I just I hope that my prophecy there from 2013 ends up being right that we we had a lot more going into this than we have in the past because I think a lot of people think in the depression that you know everybody knew how to do all these things and there, the urbanization had well was well into by then. Oh, for sure, for sure. There was a lot of people in bread lines that didn't know yeah. how to do yeah. stuff. I don't think yeah. it's hard for people to uh, to wrap their head around the fact that we're not always told the truth. Yeah, like we're lied to a lot, and uh, it's you can call it lying or you can just call it marketing, right? So. <laughs> If you if you eat some of the things that just grow naturally around here and they're called weeds, yeah, uh, they are really good to eat. Like we live on them in the summertime, and then you put them up against the stuff that's available for sale at the store. It's no comparison. Our stuff is way better. And uh, I'm trying to convince people around here, well, in conversations at the table, that that's done intentionally. You know if If you saw lamb's quarter at the store in bunches, then people would realize, hey, you mean you can eat that stuff? Yeah. And it would get out of control. So uh, they they have to keep – like food is is way more profitable than, say, drugs. And drugs is a very profitable thing, you know, legal and illegal. And so the marketing that goes around food is – it's critical. Right. You don't want these yeah. these peasants to know that they can they can eat without without us helping them, you know. And that's part of anyone can farm, too, is to kind of wake people's uh, inner pioneer spirit in them to see all the things that are available to them that are just kind of kept out of your vision. Yeah, your, your thing with the Lance course makes me think about, like, I can sum up the whole problem with our food system with a story from when I was a soldier. So I was deployed into Honduras into a place called Aguan River Valley, middle of nowhere. We were putting a 10-mile road in in the middle of nowhere that didn't exist yet. And so all our food came in on a weekly basis, all our fresh food. We lived a lot on MREs, but we also had fresh food come in. And one of the things you never got actually fresh was a banana. The bananas were black by the time you got a hold of them. And what had happened is no matter where the food came from, it had to go through the APO in Miami. That would get it into Panama, and then that would get it into Honduras, and then that would come out of Sudacano Air Base eventually and either get trucked or flown into our location. So a banana doesn't travel that well. Well, right outside our talk was a <laughs> banana tree with bananas on it, right? And so there's the bananas. Well, I didn't know this till we left, and we left, we convoyed out of the north instead of the south because the road was there now. Next thing I know, we're driving through bananas. There's nothing but bananas. You can see to the horizon in all directions, and there's nothing but bananas. And one of the guys had switched on to what, what, what that place was. He said, this is a dull banana plantation, and this is the single largest at the time. This is a 1990s banana plantation in the world. It was 20 miles from where we were camped. Largest banana plantation in the world, black bananas. 
<laughs> because they had to go in this giant circle. And they were pro it's probably the case that we were eating bananas that were grown 20 miles from us that were traveling thousands of miles to get back to us. And, and to me, that's, that's food distribution in America because a lot of times what's going on, you are eating food from 3,000 miles away. But the food that's being grown in your backyard is the, the planes are passing each other or the trucks are passing each other on the highway, taking the food in two different directions. And it's one thing if it's coffee from Brazil and we're sending the Brazilians, I don't know, American pork. Okay, I, you know, maybe the Brazilians aren't going to grow pork and we can't grow coffee, at least it's something. But I think a lot of times, like, it's literally lettuces passing each other. Like, that is food distribution in America because whatever, whatever path will make the most money for the middleman is the path that will be taken. No one gives a shit about the farmer. The farmer we just put as a, as a marketing logo on the bag that the lettuce comes in. But nobody really cares about the farmer. All the money is made in that distribution system. And what you're talking about is a flat model. My backyard to my plate or my backyard to my neighbor's plate. Yeah. Well, the homesteading model, it, it kind of beats that all up because – Everything is right here. And, uh, you know, it, it's from right here into the kitchen where our own best, um, our own best customers. And I don't want people to get the idea that you can't, if you're a homestead, you can't make dollars because we do several things on this farm that keep the lights on. You know, we, we sell pigs, we butcher pigs and sell the cuts and milk cows and sell the milk and, um, a lot of things that we do. Um, there, there's a, a spell and incantation out there that raw milk is illegal. Mm. That's one of those things that they always say. And, uh, I don't know. Last time I checked the controlled substance roster, it, it wasn't right under C4 explosive. <laughs> it's not there. So how yeah. can it be illegal? You know, it's just yeah. a, a rumor that gets started and, uh, the entities that don't want, you know, people milking 10 cows and supplying, you know, 40 families with milk, with good raw milk, they, they push those, those spells out there and people believe it. I, there's ways around a lot of that because like that's almost exclusively done at the state level. So then your federal constitution may not apply, but There's always ways. We had a farm we were managing in West Virginia, and West Virginia is the worst for raw milk. There's all these loopholes like cow shares and sell it as pet food. They closed all that. So we sold it as a soil amendment, yeah. and we said it was the freshest soil amendment you could get. <laughs> well, yeah. if, it's, if it's truly illegal, then they wouldn't even say anything to you. They'd just clap the bracelets right on you and haul you away. Yeah, uh, I, I try to explain it to people like this. Uh, if you come to our place and buy a gallon of milk and you got it sitting on the seat and you're riding home yeah. and you get pulled over by a patrolman, state policeman, <laughs> are you going to chuck that out the window? No. Then no. you'll get in trouble for chucking it out the window. Garbage. He doesn't uh, care. He's a law enforcement officer. He yeah. doesn't care about, yeah. you know, Department yeah. of this, the department of this is little regulations that. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's the department. The reality thing. is, is if their regulations are repugnant to the U.S. Constitution, you're not under any obligation to pay it even any attention at all. 
Yeah, That's I would really agree helpful. with that. Yeah. I'm also, like I said, I'm big on if you know how to use the right words and the right way to handle things. Yeah, and the other thing is, like, who's going to enforce these laws? It is illegal in Texas to pick a deer up off the road that's been hit by a car. I have twice had cops help me put a deer in the back of my truck. Right? <laughs> like, like it's like it's illegal. Well, if you're a game warden that got uh, jumped up out of bed by somebody making a phone call complaining about it, you might be mad enough to write a citation for it. But it's an unenforced law. And the cops just look at it as, well, this redneck wants to take deer home, and I don't have to worry about a lane here stinking on the side of the road in my town. Oh, hell yeah. Here, get it. Yeah. Get it out of here. Why would I they care? They, they don't care. And that's we need to stop obeying things that, number one, aren't laws. Number two, are laws that they can't enforce. And number three, are laws they don't enforce. Because a lot of things people obey, and when I say obey, I mean they do it just because you're supposed to. They're not, there's, they're not even, they don't even pretend to be laws. Like the whole, you know, everybody should go to college thing, right? Like, well, do you have a reason? Because if you do, great. But if you don't, then maybe you shouldn't do that. Right. And there's so many things in life people do just because, well, you're supposed to, or they say because you're supposed to say it that way, or you don't say it because you're not allowed to say it that way because the blue checks will descend on you and get you canceled or whatever. And I think there's people like myself and yourself that over time, We have, de we have destroyed even the myth of cancel culture. Cancel yeah. me. Go ahead. Go fly. And I said this 20 years ago. I said, yeah, go, you go. The reason I am the way I am and I piss people off all the time is so the people that do care about what I do and do follow me, if somebody goes to them someday and goes, do you know what Jack Spirico said? They'll go, yeah. that sounds like Jack. Yeah. Go away. Don't bother me. Like that's, we all have to start living this way. And I'm, and homesteading is one way to do it. Let, let's finish up though. Um, yeah. Uh, what are some key skills that you think a new homesteader really needs to focus on developing? Ooh, good, good question. We address this. We, we, uh, do kind of a, a talk show a couple nights a week. And that was the question last night. I think right now, uh, at, I think we're at kind of late stages. All right. Yeah. I think like something could happen and it would accelerate this, this food shortage, which I believe It's in the same category as the price of fuel is going to go up. Of course, the Russians invaded Ukraine, and that's a good reason to raise the price of fuel. They're going to do the same thing with food. We already see the prices way up. So we're at a late stage in it. But if a person really wanted an edge, and that's what it is. I mean, it's it's this is a, a fight. It's a gunfight. It's a war. Uh, you need an edge. If you're in a gunfight, you want the sun at your back. In this fight, the edge would be if you can take a live animal and turn it into table fare. I mean, you think about the people in your neighborhood. How many people there can do that? You know, in my neighborhood, I live in a really rural area uh, in in agricultural community. Not many people can do it. It's very limited. But we can. So that puts us, you know, in a in an advantageous position. So right now, because the USDA shut down so many processing plants, cattle are really cheap because, you know, guys hold them over one year to the next. They can't feed them. They yeah. just want them gone, hope, hoping things will straighten out. But if you, if you have a butcher shop, you can go buy cattle cheap. You're not gonna, you're not gonna starve. You know, the food shortage can happen. 
but you're not, it's not going to affect you if you're so the guy that there's not a food shortage. There is no food shortage. There's a grocery shortage. That's kind of what you're hitting. There's plenty of food. People just can't get it because they don't know how, right? So, like, yeah, there's not right. a cow shortage. There's no. a beef shortage. That's that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, right. So you have to have the skills to add value. Like, what are you going to do with a chicken? If you get a chicken and you don't know how to process it so that it doesn't have feathers and it doesn't have guts, but if, if you do get the feathers and the guts out of it, then it becomes a valuable, especially in a, a food crisis situ- situation. Um, if you're hungry, you'll learn how to get those feathers off of there. But it, it'd be better to learn that now yeah. Yeah. than in a bad scenario. So animal processing would definitely I think that's, be worse. Yeah. That is the number one choke point. Yeah, Jack. That's the number one choke point that they have. I think that's the reason that hunters – tend to gravitate toward this because we already knew how to do that before we had livestock. Yeah. Like if you can process a deer, it, it's more work and you might need some specialized equipment because they're big and heavy, but you can process a cow. Sure. You can, if you can process a deer, you damn sure can process the average size pig, not your biggest pigs. They still need some extra help, but like, you know, your 200 plus pound pig is, it's like doing a deer, a goat, a sheep. It's all the same. Honestly, if you can process a rabbit, you can process a deer. It's just yeah. scale. And it's not that hard, but it is, it is if you've never done it. Yeah. Like, like you said a lot, like you didn't know how to program a computer when you were born either. Or when you were 15, you had to learn or you had right. to learn how to run a spreadsheet or do whatever office task that they gave you as an adult. Um, none of this is really that hard. I'm sitting here looking at the chickens, looking at me going, he's talking about eating us. They're looking <laughs> in my window right now. <laughs> yeah. Y'all are lucky you're bantams. You're too small to be worth it until you stop laying eggs. You know? <laughs> anyway, uh, anything else? Is there any other skills you think that we might want to? Like, uh, I think number two behind that would probably be fencing. Okay. Um, yeah. Fencing is real good. That's where people get frustrated when their animals get out and, cause problems for other people. And, you know, there's a way to do things just like flying airplanes is a way to do it. And if you just learn how to do it, I I think training is, it puts, it gives a guy an edge. You get trained by somebody who knows, I'm sure you heard that when you're in the, in the army, if you want to stay alive around here, buddy, you listen to people who know, don't listen to people who don't know. Right. And so you yeah. listen to people who are doing uh, a successful homestead operation and learn from them and be prepared to pass that information on to your children and your children's friends. And like, I, I would like to have a, like a multi-level marketing thing, you know, to where it spreads out and nobody can get a handle on it. And I think that's what's happening right now. Um, yeah. They, they had worked real hard to put farming in the hands of a few and they did it through the university and, and things like that. But now it's, it's gotten away from them again and we have to spread it. Decentralize is what we need to do on, on really everything. He's out and thinks he's trying to make Amway here. The word he's really looking for is decentralized. Yeah. To have this, this, you know, you are, the, the numeric progression is what Mark's talking about. Not, a pyramid to make money. This is about how many people can we get doing this and how many different ways sharing that information and developing those skills so that 
it becomes ungovernable because that's that's the whole point of this is this I personally find the state evil inherent, and the only reason the state is is ever tolerated. The only justification would be the protection of individual rights. If you protect the individual's right, you don't have to worry about any subgroup's right. The smallest, you know, smallest minority being the individual. But if it's going to be there, then 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 governance needs to be by consent. The consent of the governed is a principle that this country was founded upon. And I don't think any of us, no matter how much we move toward, you know, my brand of anarchy or what have you, have a problem with, hey, you're not allowed to steal his shit. Right? Like that's, that is, that is, I think the consent of the governed on that is, is, is pretty, pretty universal. You don't get to go, but what happens is I can go take Mark's pigs because I have a, a, a certain badge that I'm wearing. And, and that's what, what these people are doing. And the more we spread this, the less that becomes possible. I used to quote a movie all the time. I remember Tombstone, the one with uh, Val Kilner and Kurt Russell and all. And there's a point after the shootout, the OK Corral, the, the town marshal says, you're all under arrest. And Wyatt tells him, I don't think I'm going to let you arrest us today. Yeah. Right. Like, I just don't think I'm going to let you do that today. And they just walk away. And that's that's where we need to get, like, where people, like, if somebody comes and does what they did to you, you you don't just need one man standing. I mean, that worked, but wouldn't it be great if the whole town showed up and said, "Don't think so, Hoss. Don't." He's one of us. He's a town. He's, he's feeding our town, and that's where yeah. that's where farmers used to be in America. You didn't go mess with a farmer in a town because the town's like get a food there. But when you disconnect those two things, now you can well he. That's just a guy that makes a bunch of dirt fly around or something, you know? Like, yeah. we need to reestablish what this, what, not what this country used to be, what humanity used to be. Like, we actually valued the person that fed us. You know, I, I gotta <clears throat> straighten something out there. Um, do you remember in the movie The Wizard of Oz? I mean, Dorothy goes through that entire process. Yeah. And then at the end, and she's seeking the approval of one man. She yeah. goes through the entire process, and then at the end, the good witch says, the answer is the ruby slippers. You've been wearing them the whole time. Yeah. Well, the way you said that, what you just said, you said, where where we need to be as a country is, and that indicates that we're not there. That we're indicates not. we're not there. However, I, I beg to differ. We are wearing the, the ruby slippers. We we I, I exercise them. You know, and it's the U.S. Constitution, absolutely. It's the, it is the supreme law of the land, no matter what anybody says, or else I wouldn't be sitting on this farm, and I wouldn't yeah. have my freedom, and I wouldn't have my animals. But um, it is the supreme law of the land, and it is kept out of courtrooms intentionally. They like to argue about other stupid things. But you don't even have to get into the courtroom. You can just tell these regulators, run along, girls, run along. You don't have the authority here. You don't have any authority here. Run along. And uh, then they fi- they do find out. I mean, our our group, the tribe, which is a Facebook group, this this people should know this too. It's uh, uh, the Anyone Can Farm tribe on Facebook. And you got to ask to get in. It's a private group okay. and we'll thoroughly vet you and then let you in. But there, people have had problems with, regulators both county and state and they've gotten with us and we tell them what they need to do and that attention from the tribe 
makes the state and county regulators say, uh, I don't think we want to fool with these people. So these people are always these bureaucrats, this parasite class. They're always taking the path of least resistance. When we put up resistance, it's not just, hey, screw you, get out of my face or slam the door in their face. It is the U.S. Constitution. But you you cannot pull that sword unless you download it. It's one page, the Bill of Rights, one stinking page. Read it and then live your life by it. And you're, you've got the ruby slippers on. You, you do not have to be abused by this parasite class when they say, like here in this state, they try to tell you that, well, yeah, you can carry a gun in this state. You can, per the U.S. Constitution, so long as we say so. So yeah. long as we give you a permission slip. That just kills me. But anybody that's ever pushed it finds that the, the Second Amendment is absolute. It is absolutely absolute. We'll and see. So if you want to carry a gun, you carry a gun. Just remember where all this this all comes from. This all comes from this all comes from the real authority in this country, which is and I don't say authorities are wrong, maybe the the real force in this country, which is money. So let me give you a paradigm shifting little factoid here about the Wizard of Oz. In the book, before they made the movie, the slippers were not ruby. They were silver. So Dorothy wore silver slippers and walked down the golden road to the Emerald City to meet the man behind the curtain who had no real power, but had power over everything. That entire story was about the crime of 1873, which was the demonetization of silver. So it was silver and gold leading to the Emerald City. And and when they made the movie, which they killed Julie, they literally killed Julie Garland making that movie, by the way. They said, this is a little too uncomfortable. So they changed the slippers to ruby from silver. Because it gave away what the story was actually about. It was the control of the country by the bankers, which were wresting control away and eventually would take full control in, in 1913 with the Federal Reserve Act. And, and a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, people think that it's all about this local entity or that local entity or this government. This is all about money and control because if you look at uh, the history of, of oligarchy, it is that you can make all the laws you want. You can control the government all you want. But if I control the money, I control everything. And so one of the things that makes what we're talking about powerful is it re- reduces your dependence on them for their money, their capital, their capital controls. Yeah. And and that's something I think very few people are aware of, that that, that subtle change was made. And so very few people have ever read The Wizard of Oz. They've all seen the movie or the remake or whatever. And that's... Uh, that's an interesting thing. So the, the key was silver. The key was silver. I don't know that that's the case anymore, but the key was hmm. to have money because silver was considered the people's money. Yeah. And gold was the banker's money. And so having the people's economy was the key to unlocking the power of the man behind the curtain. Isn't that wild? Why don't we learn that in school? I don't, I, yeah. And the reason I know shit like this, like when I was in 11th grade, I had a history teacher that probably could have been teaching at a university. He was an old Vietnam vet at the time. So he was older for the Vietnam vet generation. And he came in one day with one of the, the phone, the Philadelphia phone book. And he said, in this phone book, there's three colors of pages. 
There's yellow pages, it's commercial. There's white pages, that's you and me, that's residential. There's blue pages, that's government. And he challenged us to find the Federal Reserve in, in the yellow, the blue pages. And we couldn't find it. And we pass it around and we're all looking at it. It's got to be in there. It's a federal agency. It's in the yellow pages. Because huh. it's not government. It's a private entity. Yeah. And like, don't ever think one person saying one thing can't make a difference because here I am. I'm 50 years old and I'm telling that story. Yeah. So guys, think about what you said. Mark, this has been fun. This has been great. Um, give people the ways they can find out more about what you're doing again. And I'll make sure all of it's in the show notes as well for people okay. down there in the video notes, guys, uh, before Mark gives you this, there's a link. That's where the audio version will be about one hour after we finish up, not this second. And all this stuff that Mark's about to give you, I will make sure is in those audio notes for you. Okay. The, the, the site for our, more of our family is bakersgreenacres.com. And that will lead you to the anyone can farm experience.com. And with those two right there, you can find anything. Okay. Uh, we, I go on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights on YouTube Baker's, uh, no, the anyone can farm experience YouTube eight o'clock Eastern standard time. And we just have conversation about homesteading and, Things, just things that are happening, how current events apply to what we're, what we're doing, what we're going through, how do we deal with it, things like that, my perspective. Uh, and then we, we do an interview on Thursday night. We bring in whoever that's starting to homestead and, and get their point of view on stuff where I interview them. That's kind of interesting. This week it's going, I'm interviewing my youngest son. So I think that's going to be fun. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. And then uh, the Anyone Can Farm Experience has got a lot of videos on it that my son Joe has made. And if you think what we're doing is is good for the country, then please share them. And I, I do. I think it's good for the country. I think it. we need to be far more sustainable than we are, self-sustainable, self-reliant, all those that makes us Americans, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to just find who we really are as people because one of the most fundamental reasons we're here is because we figured out how to do all this stuff generations ago. We figured out how to feed ourselves from the land, whether it was hunter and gatherers, whether it was through horticulture and agriculture, we figured it out. And uh, the knowledge is not gone. There's more of it today than there ever was. Just less people doing it. And our goal here today is to get you guys considered doing it too. Mark, thank you for being with us today. Hey, Jack, thank you. I'm honored to be on the Survival Podcast and be talking with you. This was really fun. Highlight of my day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I had a lot of fun talking to Mark. That was a, he said he, his kid was the one that said, hey, man, you need to get on Jack's show, and he didn't think I'd have him on. Of course I'd have him on. I, I, I want to say this again right now. If you, you have to say is interesting to the audience, I will have you on. And right now, I have the guest form open on the website. All you have to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on guests to fill out a form. And if you fill it out completely, and that means all of the things that it asks for, and I get it, I'll look at it and evaluate it. And I don't take everybody, but I take most people. I really do. I'll send it off to Dorothy, and she'll get you booked. 
And I'll tell you the other thing about it, too. If you don't fill it out completely, you won't be on the air. I had somebody recently, a fairly big-name person, that was upset about having to fill out a form to be on a show. And I told him, well, Ron Paul had to fill out the form. You know, Adam Curry had to fill out the form. I, I kind of think you're going to get filled out the form. And, and I'll tell you, I, I, I talked to Mark about this, too, about why we did. It's just to make sure that we get everything right. We have all your social media. We have your websites. We have the things that you want to talk about. We have all your contact information. We can make sure that we do our due diligence and make sure if we don't know you that you are who you say you are. It helps us to make sure that on the day of the the, 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 uh, the, the interview that you get two reminders to make sure it's going to happen and we know something's going to fall apart. It's just because we're professional. But I am looking to finish out... 2022, I want to get, we're almost out. You're going to be booking probably in December right now. But if you'd like to be on the show, you can fill out the form, the survivalpodcast.com, and click on the guest. And if your topic is Bitcoin, you can go to the Bitcoin breakout and fill out the form there. They come to the same place. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's a Bitcoin topic, a homesteading topic, anything else in the preparedness world. Go ahead and fill it out. You know who you if you know who shouldn't fill it out. If you want to get on and tell people why they should vote for you because you're a politician, I throw those away. I'm not really interested. Uh, I am looking for the type of stuff that we talked about today that are real concrete things that people can do in their lives. With that, um, we already did the T Spaz segment in the intro, so we don't have to do that. I'll just let you know I have not yet decided what tomorrow's show will be about, but it will be a Just Jack show. Expert Council show on Friday as per usual. And with that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.